this is, I'm Daryl Tippins, and uh, the session is entitled, Though Unseen, He Meets Us Here, uh, Where Is Jesus When We Take Communion? I hope that opening to the title has a ring for some of you. Uh, there's a beautiful communion hymn that has that uh, phrase or a line in it, which is printed on the back side of your handout, by the way, uh, called Come Share the Lord. If your church doesn't sing that hymn, let me suggest you might talk to the song leader to add that to your repertoire. Uh, thank you for coming. There are some really great sessions at this hour, and the fact that you found your way here, I think of that American Airlines thing when the pilot comes on and says, thank you for flying with us today because we know you have a choice, and I know you all had a choice to fly elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> so glad you're uh, flying with me. Uh, we'll try not to crash and burn along the way. Um, I would like to say something uh, by way of context for this lesson. Uh, like all of us, I'm on a journey, and uh, I am still thinking about what it means to be a Christian, and in particular today, uh, what corporate worship is all about. And I would say that a lot of my thinking is actually the outgrowth of my uh, being reared, being trained, being taught within the Churches of Christ tradition. One of the things I learned in my tradition growing up is the importance of going back to Scripture and not just taking uh, as true whatever everyone else is thinking, but to think it through, uh, to read the text again and again, but also to respect and appreciate early Christianity. After all, I grew up with this language about wanting to be like the New Testament church. And so my interest in church history, and especially in what we call apostolic Christianity, how did the very first Christians think about uh, things, how did they practice their worship, all of that has uh, deeply interested me. So even though my field is English literature, I've always had this side interest in, uh, in church history. And when I go back and read the early church fathers and find out what they're saying, for example, about the Lord's Supper, as early as A.D. 110, so if the New Testament closed in around 95 or 96 A.D. with the, the writing of Revelation, within 15 years of the close of the New Testament, we have the testimony the written testimony of Christians worshiping. And when I see a gap, even a sometimes a significant gap, between the way they thought about, let's say, the Lord's Supper and the way I was taught to practice the Lord's Supper, I at least have to ask the question, what's going on here? <laughs> Maybe those early Christians had it wrong, you know, and after all these 19 or 20 centuries, we, uh, we got it right. But it seems to me, to avoid hubris here, a little bit of excessive pride, it's worthwhile to go back and reconsider our forebears, our spiritual fathers and mothers, and, and learn some things uh, from what they uh, knew. And so last uh, lectureship, uh, I had a couple of lessons. One was called, Who Do We Think We Are? What Churches of Christ Worship Practices Say About Us? In which I argued that if you reflect on how... Uh, members of Churches of Christ worship today, there's a story there about ourselves, about how we see our, our, our worship. And the second lesson was, who do we think God is? What our worship practices say about the Creator? And so this lesson is really, in a sense, a continuation of that, where I'm narrowing the focus to one right or practice within our faith, and that is the practice of the, the Lord's Supper. One of the things that's come to me in, in all of my reading and thinking and reflection uh, is the discovery that early Christians worshipped, I would say, in a more holistic way than we do today. 
uh, that worship was not just having the right thoughts about God, not just about having the right mental state of mind, but that it involved the whole person. Uh, we might, in fact, connect what I'm saying this uh, morning with what we heard last night from Don McLaughlin when he kept asking the question, what is the body for? What is the body for? I want to take that question to the table and to the communion service, the, the worship, and ask, what's the role of the body in worship? Because what I think you will find in early Christianity that the body was very important in worship more so than many of us perhaps imagine today. And I'd like to think with you about how our changed view of the role of the body in worship might be understood better by a quick look at history. Uh, let me just say this at the beginning, that one of the things you learn from reading the New Testament and, and reading early church sources is that there is a deep understanding and appreciation for creation and nature. That God is the creator. He pronounced creation good, very good, and that includes the human person, that includes, includes the human body. Uh, there's a, a wonderful passage in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mere Christianity, where he talks about what it means to be in Christ. And he says, um, when you say that a person is in Christ, you're not saying simply that we're thinking about Christ. Being in Christ isn't just having good mental thoughts about Jesus. Uh, it's not just about thinking about Christ or even just copying him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them. When they say Christ is in you, it wasn't just metaphor. It wasn't just poetry. It wasn't just symbolic. It wasn't just sort of. I mean, they really believed that Christ was in you. Uh, Lewis says, they mean that Christ is actually operating through them, that the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts, that we are his fingers and muscles, the cells of his body. And perhaps that explains one or two things. It explains why this new life is spread not only through purely mental acts like belief, but by bodily acts like baptism and Holy Communion. It is not merely the spreading of an idea, it is more like evolution, a biological or super-biological fact. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Uh, that's a funny line, isn't it? But it's funny because it's so absolutely true, and yet you could listen to lots of discourses in churches week after week and never get the notion that matter is good and that God likes it. Uh, once we concede that matter is good and God likes it, it actually may then affect something we say or think about creation. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, uh, our job is to stand with one foot on earth and one in heaven with the double vision that is the gift of faith and to say out of our own experience that reality is not flat but deep, not opaque but transparent, not meaningless but shot full of grace. 
for those with the least willingness to believe it's so. Of course, once you uh, accept this premise, or at least try on the hypothesis, that God loves matter, and he loves bodies, and he loves creation, and then it causes you to pay attention to some of those scriptures that are all around us. Uh, that we read, for example, that the heavens are t telling the glory of God and the firmament is declaring his handiwork. Or what Paul says in Acts 17, that in God we live and move and have our very being. Or Isaiah, the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, wow, creation is a big deal. The question is, is creation to be kept out of the church door, at, at the church door so that we can come into our little assembly and put away the things of the world? How many times have we prayed about in worship, in church, let's put away the things of the world? That may be a very good thing, but it may be the wrong thing if we mean to uh, sort of uh, ex exclude creation uh, in, our, in our worship. Uh, if God is everywhere... If in him we live and move and have our very being, then the question, of course, arises, well, what's then special about corporate worship? And that's where our primary focus is going to be today. It seems to me that throughout Scripture you see two themes. One is God is the God of everything. He is uh, omnipresent, as we have come to say. But at the same time, something special or unique happens when we assemble, and that both can be true. For example, the psalmist can say, let us come into his presence with singing, right? Psalm 100. Well, if he's everywhere, <laughs> then aren't we already in his presence? Well, yes. But is it also true that we are in his presence in some unique or special or, or uh, an extraordinary way when we assemble? Absolutely. Psalm 22, when I do my lessons on singing, I, I love to make a big deal out of Psalm 22 where uh, uh, where the psalmist says that God is enthroned on the th praises of Israel. When Israel sings the psalms, God is somehow or another present. He's enthroned on the praises of Israel. And so through scripture you have this other notion that uh, when we meet, God meets us in the assembly in some way. Uh, you see this in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is trying to correct all sorts of errors in the in the Corinthian church, and he then goes on to say, when you prophesy properly and do things in the way that you should, even the outsider will, in your midst will fall on his knees and say, surely God is really among you. Wow. So this notion that God is everywhere on the one hand, but in the assembly, he's really present. And isn't that the promise of Jesus when he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them, uh, Matthew 18, 20. So as the song goes, he shines in all that's fair. This is my father's world. You're seeing that? There is the omnipresence version of God. But then we turn right around and we have other scriptures and passages and hymns that suggest that there are special means of grace. Uh, the rainbow is a sign of God's presence and promise, Right? Uh, in that sense, I'm going to shift and use the word sacrament, uh, a word that's not commonly used in our tradition, but it's actually simply a version of the Latin translation of the Bible, sacramentum, which is a translation of the Greek word mysterion, 
uh, that, that there are mysteries through which God reveals himself to us. And so uh, I'm comfortable with the word sacrament. If you're not, you don't have to use it. But the concept here behind sacrament then is that there are means, even material means, through which God makes himself present to us. There are indispensable provisions of, of his mercy. Uh, these are universal ordinances. Some people see baptism and Lord's Supper as the sacraments. Interestingly, Alexander Campbell believed there were three, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Christian assembly. He believed that in the assembly, in, commun in communion together, God was specially present. Um, but that language is very uncomfortable for many people. And I think the reason is that several things happened between the close of the New Testament and that apostolic era and where we are today. And so I'm going to do, do a very, very quick uh, uh, rough and ready kind of survey of, of some of movements or stages in Western culture particularly. It didn't happen in the Eastern Church in the way it happened in the Western Church. But in the churches of the West, uh, certain um, movements happened that I think created this distance between God and ourselves or the sense of God's uh, distance from us. Um, and so, for example, um, the first is, and I hate to beat up on Plato, but uh, Plato and those uh, heretics who followed him that we call Gnostics are their first uh, problem that we have. And that problem is already present in the New Testament. Anyone who reads uh, certain epistles in the New Testament, like 1 John, know uh, through the footnotes that there or the commentaries that John is already working against the Gnostics who believe that the physical world is evil, and therefore the body is evil. And some even get to the point that Jesus couldn't have been God in the flesh. And that's why John makes a big deal out of the importance of confessing that God came in the flesh, incarnation, because there were Gnostics who said that's not possible. Maybe God came in the form of, an, of a spirit or an apparition or an appearance of a, of a human body, but it's not possible for God, who is perfection, to enter something that's imperfect, the flesh. So for the Gnostics, matter is mostly dirty, inconvenient, an impossible drag on the aspirations to rise into the realm of spirit. I'm quoting Eugene Peterson here, summarizing it. Uh, in the scale of being, matter is lower and detracts from what is higher. It is also the evident source of most trouble. If there were no things, there would be neither theft nor covetousness. It's hard to argue with that, right? Uh, if there were no flesh, there would be no gluttony or fornication. Therefore, in this way of thinking, salvation becomes some way to escape your physicality. If I could just rise above being a material being, then I could be a spiritual being. But there's a problem with this. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, says in his book, Surprised by Hope, we have been buying our mental furniture for so long in Plato's factory that we assume that spirit is immaterial and matter is material. Paul presents a whole new, new mode of physicality. Our heavenly bodies will be more real, not less real. We won't be these wispy spirits that polish stars or, or whatever and float on clouds. This new mode will be more real, more bodily, not less bodily. This life is the shadow life. The real, solid life lies ahead. 
Uh, and so uh, if this is true, and, and by the way, uh, Peterson goes on to say, most Gnostics, and I believe the church is populated with Gnostics. I've never heard of a church disfellowshipping a Gnostic. Uh, most Gnostics have never heard the word. You can be Gnostic in your thinking and just not know the label. Gnostics don't carry membership cards. There have been a few times in history when Gnostics formed an identifiable sect and did outright battle with the church. But for the most part, Gnosticism is a tilt of the soul, a tendency of spirit that doesn't call attention to itself. I just will say, when I began to study church history and philosophy and reading Plato and the Gnosticism, I thought, oh my gosh, I grew up with this. And I was a good church-going guy, you know, three times a week. But I would just say Gnostic assumptions sort of permeated the air without it ever being named by name. And my view is that it had a great effect on our view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it wasn't just that the, the, this Gnostic notion uh, sort of came along uh, and sort of taught us that bodies are traps and the soul is merely trapped in the shell of the self to be discarded. But I think the Reformation did its own damage, too. Now, I would say in general, I think the Reformation did a great deal of good. Uh, We've just finished uh, commemorating the 500th anniversary of uh, Luther and the 95 Theses and all that. And the Reformation did a great deal to correct and call to account the excesses of Roman Catholicism. Uh, But in that debate, as often happens, one extreme begets another extreme. And I would argue that in some cases the baby was thrown out with the bathwater when it comes to things like the Lord's Supper. Because uh, so much of the debate about what happens in the bread and the wine during the, in, in the Reformation era, so much of the debate depended upon philosophical terms and philosophical categories that were borrowed uh, from uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas and others, that the, the whole discussion got skewed uh, in these deeply philosophical terms uh, that are certainly post-New Testament and post-biblical. And I think uh, what it did, though, is it drove many Christians in their reaction to these arcane discussions of transubstantiation and consubstantiation and all that to a position that I consider close to being heretical, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but it primarily turns the Lord's Supper into something that's just a mental operation. You just think about Jesus at the table, and if you just think about Jesus at the table, that's the Lord's Supper. And so you have people commonly who preside at the table call your thoughts to the table and to Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, and you may sing a hymn that reminds you of what happened on the cross, and that's it. That's called memorialism, okay? And we'll get into that. But then there's a third move that I think that had damaging effects on our understanding of the Lord's Supper, and that is the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, we went from a notion that the world is filled with spiritual beings and that the supernatural is present around us to what has commonly been called a desacralized world. There is no longer the sense of the sacramental in creation. Um, a term that was, uh, I guess, created by Charles Taylor, who's written really the, I think, definitive book on how we move to a, a, a secular age, uh, he calls this excarnation, that we moved from 
an, an in understanding of incarnation, God in the flesh, to a removal of God from creation. So this theological outcome of this is deism, or eventually atheism. The deists do this intermediate move where they say, well, God still exists, but he is totally separate and apart from his creation. He doesn't interfere with it. He created this elaborate contraption called the cosmos, and he built into it its own rules of operation. My watch works quite well without my agency right now, and the universe is simply an elaborate watch, and if we want to fix something in creation, we learn how it works, and we use good science to make things work, and so God is theoretically there, but for all practical purposes, he's irrelevant to the operations of the world. Guess what? The Restoration Movement came into being in, at the height of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment assumptions were everywhere in the air, and it would be surprising indeed if uh, our movement got underway without being touched by certain kinds of Enlightenment ways of thinking. And so uh, Charles Taylor says that in excarnation there is a transfer of our religious life out of bodily forms of ritual, worship, and practice so that it becomes to reside more and more in the head. Religion is what you do in your head. Religion is primarily from the neck up. And so if you recognize this for a moment, you, you will be surprised if you go through the Bible and look at all of the acts of worship that are actually recorded there. I've gone through and found about 60 different acts of worship. In the Restoration Movement, we reduced it down to how many? Five acts of worship. So uh, the Bible talks about lifting holy hands to God in prayer, kneeling before God, falling prostrate before God. Are those acts of worship? Never mind laying on of hands, anointing with oil. Uh, the list is amazing how many acts of worship you find in the Bible. But many of those involve the body. And since the body doesn't matter anymore in this new deistic enlightenment model, we're free to chuck them. So holy kisses, heaven forbid, you know. Just think about it. All these laying on of hands, physical act after physical act is assumed in Scripture. And not just in the Old Testament, folks. <laughs> it's in the New Testament. And then when you pick up the early church fathers, those that were writing in the first century after the close of the New Testament, in the second century, you know what? All kinds of physical acts of worship. Somehow, after the Reformation, we associated those physical acts of worship with something else than Christianity. We called it Catholic, or we called it Eastern Orthodox, or we called it weird, or whatever. But we felt free to simply chuck it. But you can do that if you're into excarnation because the body doesn't matter. It's from the neck up after all, right? Uh, it seems to me we have a problem here. Official Christianity has gone through a transfer out of embodied, enfleshed forms of religious life to those which are more in the head, which leads us to how I think worship in churches of Christ often occurs. And I want to stop here and issue a, uh, a caution because there are so many churches of Christ, individual congregations in America and around the world, and we know today there's tremendous variety even among our local churches now. The one thing I don't want to say is you're doing it wrong in your church or you're doing it right or there's only one way we do it in the churches of Christ. 
I, I, I don't have that knowledge, and I don't want to presume there. What I can report is what I experience in churches of Christ I attend, what I remember not only from childhood but from what I see around us a lot. And what I see is that we have changed the Lord's Supper from its biblical meaning in certain subtle ways that are not very helpful. The Lord's Supper in the New Testament is described as being many different things. It's described as being a memorial service. Do this in my memory. I love the table in the church of my youth where that was carved on the wooden table at the front of the church. Do this in my memory. It's also, though, described as a covenant meal is where we take the blood of the covenant in the cup. It's described as a Thanksgiving meal. And that's why it's called a Eucharist in many churches, because Eucharistio in Greek simply means thanksgiving. Jesus gave thanks at the table. And understanding the Lord's Supper as Eucharist is really very, very fundamentally biblical. Whether you use the term Eucharist or not, that's a, a different matter. But then it's more than that. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, it's called a koinonia. And if you go through multiple translations, you, you may be surprised at how many different ways koinonia is translated. It's to, to translated as participation, sharing, fellowship, partnership, communion. At the root of communion is union, right? And you can't have union without two or more things uniting, right? I would argue that if you accept the Greek notion of koinonia, you necessarily will take seriously the idea of participation. Let me give you an example of how that works in another passage. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. That's a passage where Peter very famously says that God has given us the power to participate in the divine nature. The word participate there is koinonis. Uh, it's translated, he gave us the power to share God's essential nature. That the nature of God can actually become a part of you. That's koinonia again. Is that just metaphorical? Is that just sort of? Is that poetic? Or did Peter really mean it? That as you are shaped into his image, you are given the power to participate in the very nature of God. I would argue that the Lord's Supper is very much like baptism. Most people I know in the churches of Christ believe that something really happens at baptism. It's not just a pretty symbol or metaphor. We actually believe that you're united with Christ. I would be uncomfortable if someone at a baptism said, today uh, we are baptizing Sally and today she will figuratively unite with Jesus. Uh, no, we wouldn't say, this just represents a person being united with Christ. Would you be uncomfortable with that addition of the language? Of just, this just represents Christ coming into your life? And yet at the Lord's table, all over America, on Sundays, people will say, this bread represents the body of Christ. That language is not in the Bible. This cup represents the blood of Christ. That's not, why would you add words to the words of Jesus Christ himself? Seems to me we ought to take Jesus at his word. And if he said, this is my blood and this is my bread, why should we do a midrash on it and improve it or soften it 
or make it easier to accept if you're in an enlightenment mode. You almost have to say which represents if you're into the excarnation. But if you believe in incarnation, it seems to me you take the language uh, as it is. I won't go into a, a study of John 6, but I, can th I think you should know that in John 6, early Christians took that as Eucharistic language. When Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's the point when many people quit following Jesus because it was a hard saying for them. When he said, this bread is my flesh, <laughs> can't we take him at his word? And not worry about going through all the Reformation debates about how it happens or what it is exactly. Uh, it doesn't seem to me necessary at all. Another uh, text I would argue uh, tells us something about how the early church saw the Lord's Supper is uh, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember Cleopas and his unnamed uh, companion? Uh, many people think it was actually Luke, interestingly enough. And if you think about it, this is the first Christian worship service after the resurrection. It's the first Sunday night service in the history of the church, and Jesus is present, isn't he? And the amazing story is he's hidden. They don't know he's at the table with them, right? And what did they do? They break bread. And as they later say, our hearts burned within us and our eyes were opened at the breaking of the bread, and they discovered that Jesus was present. And you know what? The early church saw that as a picture of Eucharist. That when you break the bread, Christ is present, whether he's visible or not, whether he's seeable or not, he's really there. The early church believed in the real presence. What they didn't do was try to figure out how it worked, you know, and what it meant literally and what was the chemical makeup of the bread or the wine. They just took Jesus at his word. So here's a question or two. Uh, one is, does this all matter? Am I being fussy? <laughs> is something at stake here? And I would argue absolutely something is at stake. In the ancient world, table fellowship was a big deal. Many of you know enough of the New Testament to know that who you have at your table or not can create big debates, divisions, right? Peter, others are trying to figure out who we can eat with, who we cannot. Who is present at the table matters. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 10, where Jesus talks about being a partner with Jesus at the table, that you are participating with him, you are communing with him in the bread and the wine, he goes on to make a very interesting point. He said, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners communing with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, commune with Jesus in the Lord's Supper, and commune with demons at the table of the pagans. Look at what Paul is assuming. You see, he lives in this sacralized world. He believes the world is filled with demons and spirits, good and bad. And you can't commune at two different altars. If you can commune with demons, and Paul says you can, then it seems to me he's drawing an exact analogy. You are really communing with Jesus at the table. And that's why you can't leave the Sunday service and then go over to a pagan altar. 
it's not possible to do both. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of the demons. For Paul, all worship is sacramental then. Even false worship is sacramental. You may be in a pagan temple, but you're still communing with some being. So it's not just a symbol, it's real. Just as Christ's human body is united to him, so we are united to him. As many grains become one loaf, those who take the communion become one in Christ. I've talked with Leonard Allen quite a bit recently and was able to read early drafts of his new book, Poured Out, and I hope you buy it and read it if you haven't done so already. But it's very interesting that what um, Leonard shows happened to our understanding of the Holy Spirit, the marginalization of the Spirit, the diminishment of our awareness of Spirit, exactly parallels what we did at the Lord's table in making it just a memorial, removing the sense of its mystery or the divine presence and so forth. By the way, I see this as what we did also with, the, with baptism to some degree. We, in Churches of Christ, many people did a two-step move. The first move was to take baptism and the Lord's Supper and make them legal requirements. If you want to be faithful to God, you've got to check the list, and one check you've got to have is baptism and Lord's Supper. But even as we made them legal requirements, we tended to empty them of their mystery and their power, their, their, their rich... Uh, uh, spiritual significance. And I'm suggesting saying they're required is fine, but we should not empty them of their, their power. I believe that Christianity withers and dies, or it flourishes according to our belief in God's presence in our world and present in this life. Note the places in the world today where Christianity is flourishing, and I think of the global south in particular, where the sense of the Spirit presence is very alive and vital and where divine presence is honored and expected and welcomed churches tend to flourish but when you reduce christianity to mental acts from the neck up and god is far far away you actually i believe destroy christianity we heard last night in the lecture bodies matter they do, and they matter in worship too. And when we remove the body from our worship, more or less, I believe we are damaging it very seriously. I want to end with just some uh, practical suggestions, some practical matters that might be of help. Uh, number one, let me urge you in your church to simply respect the language of Scripture. How controversial is that? <laughs> you know? Uh, just use scripture and take it seriously and employ it often. I'm appalled at how little scripture is read in many churches today. Often it's just a, a theme verse is thrown out and that's it. Uh, how many uh, communion services can you attend where you never hear the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper at the table? I remember it occasionally in my childhood but now I hear more often deep thoughts from somebody who had an interesting experience the previous week, and we prefer that over the very words of Scripture. Uh, I question the wisdom of that. Employ Jesus' exact words, not our own midrash on them. Don't put words in the mouth of Jesus that he didn't speak, please. I also think it might be worth noticing that the, word, the verbs of institution take... Bless, 
break, and give are key verbs of action at the table. Look at Luke 22. And then go to the disciples in Emmaus and look, and it's the same four verbs. Maybe those count for something. (laughs) Take. In many churches, there is the fraction of the bread. There's symbolism in the very breaking of the bread. Jesus broke the bread, right? Uh, Maybe that counts for something. Once you add the body back into worship, things that looked incidental or marginal or trivial maybe aren't quite so marginal or trivial after all. So a couple of other points. Cultivate reverence. Uh, This uh, quote from Alexander Campbell I found in John Mark Hicks' book, book, and I recommend it to you. I gathered people revisioning the assembly as transforming encounter. And he also has a book called Come to the Table on the Lord's Supper. And both those books you really ought to uh, have in your library, I think. But look at what Campbell said in 1839, 179 years ago. He's complaining about churches not taking reverence seriously in worship. Our manners, I mean those of this age, are not sacred. Our attitude, our countenance, our demeanor are not reverential. We feel not that we stand on holy ground. Uh, He goes on to call the assembly, the house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the gate of heaven. He said worshipers should feel themselves especially present or especially in the presence of the Lord. Uh, The assembly should be conducted as if the Lord Jesus was personally present. (laughs) Wow. Since he is, in fact, in the midst of them. If we realize the divine presence, it would be impossible we could act thoughtlessly, irreverently, or lightly on such occasion. I've never uh, met a monarch of, of, a, of a kingdom, but I've been in the presence of important people. When I worked at Pepperdine, we would occasionally have important people on campus. And I was always sort of on my toes and a bit nervous when I was around somebody important, a dignitary of some sort. And this is a really faulty or weak analogy, but if you think about being in the presence of the Holy One of Israel and Jesus Christ, would you be on your toes a bit? <laughs> would it feel different, you know, if you were in the presence of Queen Elizabeth of England or whatever? I would feel different. But I must say, based on what I see in myself and others, uh, we're doubtful about whether we take presence seriously. I would also say we could learn something from the Passover tradition. Many of us have heard lessons uh, about the fact that the Lord's Supper was uh, established in the context of the Passover, and maybe you've heard sermons, sermons or devotional thoughts showing how much the awareness of the Passover enriches your experience at the table. That's really true. I think the more you know about the Jewish roots of Christianity, the more you appreciate them. But think about this. The Passover was not just a memorial. It was a memorial, but if you have ever gone through a Passover, you know that you're doing something more than just remembering an event in history. You are re-experiencing the event. It is a reenactment. If the Passover is the context of the Lord's Supper, let me ask you, is it also a reenactment? If you go to uh, a passage like you see... Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, it's a fascinating scene where the, uh, the, the people of Israel begin by remembering their delivery out of Egypt, and then the, the uh, pronouns change from they, they were delivered out of Egypt, to first person plural, we were delivered out of e- Egypt. And so when the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, 
And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, and he brought us out of the land of Egypt. If you do that at Passover, should that happen at the Lord's Supper? Were you delivered at the cross? I love the fact that we have hymns, some of them, that are in the present tense, where they take you to the story of the crucifixion, and we sing songs like, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Uh, St. Augustine said many, many centuries ago that the crucifixion of Christ happened once, but Eucharist, in a sense, makes present what took place in time past and in this way moves us as if we were actually watching our Lord hanging on the cross. Uh, here's a, another case where our rejection of Catholic teaching has caused us to recoil from that notion. Because in the language of the Mass, you could get the idea that Christ is literally being crucified again at the time of uh, the creation of the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. I think that's a real misunderstanding of Catholic thinking. But whether or not you uh, care about how the Catholic uh, liturgy goes, the idea that at the table we once more remember the crucified Christ and that the crucified Lord is with us at the table it seems to me to be pretty good theology. Fortunately, we have hymns like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And notice the language, the present tense verbs in that hymn. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Or the hymn that I allude to in my title, which is on the back of your handout. Though unseen, he meets us here, present tense. I hope when you take communion next time, you take that language literally, that Christ is at the table and he is meeting you. Something else I think we could do is enlarge the repertoire of hymns on the Eucharist. I took uh, the hymn book of the Episcopal Church and compared it to the hymns in one of our Church of Christ hymnals. And what was interesting is though we do communion in the Church of Christ, the number of hymns on the Eucharist in the uh, Episcopal hymnal is much thicker. There are many more choices. And I just think our choices are rather thin. And why should we be limited to just the ones we already have? Why shouldn't we look at some of those other hymns? And the neat thing is many of those hymns on those other hymnals go to YouTube and you can hear how they're sung. And uh, you can decide whether they are doable in your church or not. Uh, I would encourage you to kind of shake things up a bit and realize that the... Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the hymnody around the Eucharist is, uh, is rich and we need, uh, need help here. Think about how the Lord's Supper ought to be connected to other worship elements like prayer, especially prayer of confession. Uh, Paul warns us of the danger of going to the table without discerning the body and the danger that comes to us if we do not do the discerning first. How much time does your church spend discerning the body before you take the elements. Maybe you need to pray the Lord's Prayer before you take communion, which has a prayer of confession in it. Maybe you need to pray Psalm 51, which is a prayer of confession. Maybe you need to borrow some prayers like, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Would people be more prepared to take bread and wine if they knew that they had confessed and had been absolved of their sin? And then finally, let me just say this. Consider the structure of your very facility where you worship. 
I think it was uh, Churchill who said that man creates the structure and then the structure shapes the man. That there are ways in which the, the way you do things physically, because bodies count, once again, say very interesting things about your church. And in some churches of Christ, the communion table has just disappeared. And so you may have... Uh, you know, plexiglass pulpit or nothing at all, but there's no sense of a table. The church is a place where we come to commune with Christ and with one another. If you came to my home for hospitality and we went into the dining room and you couldn't see a table, you would think something was different, right? Uh, maybe even the, the symbolism of the physical table itself and its placement is already a message that has a powerful meaning Maybe the unconscious level, but has meaning nonetheless. Seems to me that's possible. Henry Nouwen said, in my own life, the Eucharist is the center. Be sure to make the Eucharist the center of your life. The Eucharist is the place through which God really enters into our lives. Thanks for coming today. Have a good day.